The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box in your headlines. This hour, stocks across Asia mostly higher, but failed to track Wall Street's big rally after a blowout U.S. jobs print helps drive the Dow to its best day in two months. Hundreds of thousands flood the streets of Hong Kong as protesters peacefully mark six months of anti-government demonstrations in the Chinese territory. France bracing for a fifth day of nationwide strikes against pension reforms as the government seeks to calm fears, but push ahead with an overhaul of the system. And OPEC plus its allies agree to deeper production cuts while Saudi Arabia's energy minister tells CNBC the deal has nothing to do with Saudi Aramco's listing this week. It just so happened uh, that, uh, you know, the timing of OPEC meeting was decided uh, way in June. The timing of the IPO was decided just more recently. With just four days to go until the UK general election, polls have Prime Minister Boris Johnson on track to win a Conservative majority as he promises a transformative Brexit on the 31st of January. Right, happy Monday, everybody. Let's get through to the data we saw at the tail end of last week. Then we can talk about this week and what we're going to see in what is an absolutely pivotal week in many ways here in Europe for the destiny of Brexit, for the destiny of the UK and the destiny, of course, of some of those underlying assets as well across Europe. This is not just a British story. But ahead of that, let's look back at what was a fantastic set of data on the payroll. Unambiguously good revisions on the upside, over 40,000 extra jobs from previous months, plus this figure, which we expected to be good because workers coming back from those September and October auto strikes around GM as well, coming back into the system. But this was a blockbuster number, 266,000 jobs created, tempered average earnings growth as well, getting everyone to question again what's going on with the Phillips curve. But the annual figure is still up 3.1%. That is not to be sniffed at. US markets rallied hard on the back of this. 10 out of 11 sectors were in positive territory. But what was also very interesting is when you look at the net moves for the week for these three massive indices, I can tell you what they were. We had the Dow down 0.13 of 1%, despite that huge move to the upside there. The S&P was only up 0.1 of 1%, despite the fact that we're trading now really much, very near record levels again, 31.45. And the Nasdaq uh, was up around about 1% on Friday, uh, but down 0.1 of a percent uh, on the week. So net, net, the market did absolutely nothing last week, of course. But again, uh, it has been a very big few weeks in advance of that, taking us to some record levels. Let's have a look at where some of these currency crosses are currently trading as well. Uh, the pound. I can tell you this is very easy. When it's below 130 at the moment, people think, oh my goodness, is Brexit or is the Labour Party going to scupper something? When it's trading at these kind of levels, people think there is going to be some kind of conservative majority. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, not for me to say. Whether it means there'll be a swifter Brexit or not, possibly. But again, 
I'm not making a value judgment on that. Euro dollar trading 110.59, dollar yen 108.58 as well. Normally, I would say to take a look at the data with some really big data this week. Tuesday, productivity and labor costs as well. Wednesday, consumer prices. Thursday, uh, producer prices. And Friday, absolutely pivotal sales. But the key event would normally be the FOMC meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday. And of course, we'd expect some form of rate cut, but we're not going to get that now, are we? For many, many reasons. One, the mid-cycle adjustment comments have come out. B, the Fed has said, on the basis of that, they're pretty much on pause. And, and C, I'm up to C, I think I'm up to C, the fact of the matter is, uh, the payroll numbers were so good, you cannot be cutting rates uh, on the back of data like that as well. So really big data this week. But the question is, does it matter? Does it matter for January? Because we have got a rate setting meeting on the 28th and 29th of January. Let's just wait and see. A lot of people are taking one off the table for that meeting now as well. Let's have a look at the Asian indices and where they're trading. Uh, the Hang Seng flat as a pancake. Uh, Shanghai Composite up 0.071%, really not moving at all. Uh, let's have a look also at the opening calls for the European markets. A lot of last minute positioning from a lot of you this year as well. Uh, a lot of you made some really big money this year. But have you outperformed the underlying benchmarks? And have you paid some of your supposedly active uh, fund managers, whether it's in the hedge fund space or elsewhere? Have you paid too much for your performance this year compared with the underlying indices? Just asking. 58.60, the CAC 40, the FTSE 72.19. Jeffrey Karen, good morning to you. Morning. Yeah, very good morning. How I'm going to put my earpiece back in because it fell apart as I was talking. Oh, did it? It was lovely. It was That's blissful. no good, is it? Well, do you know, the, the thing is, I have all these voices in my head. And as you both know, some of them yes. are actually real, I'm told. Yes. Uh, but it was blissfully quiet for a while. Right. Felt like sanity. Yes. Um, that's a new earpiece, isn't it? I, I it's think, one, um, one that I was given because I've left mine elsewhere. Yeah, fine. Okay, so, so here we go. The best uh, non-farm payroll number we've seen in 10 months. Um, alongside that, we get a Michigan consumer sentiment number that looks by and large strong. We also got some consumer credit data from the United States that also looked unambiguously positive. We said against that, though, some of the weakness in the Canadian data that we've seen, the obviously um, weak industrial numbers coming out of Germany at the end of the week here. Uh, we've got a, a, a guest on this morning who's going to tell us how the British Chambers of Commerce think the UK is not in a particularly good state running into 2020. And again, it appears that the US economy is uh, continuing to set up traps for those who believe that it's going to weaken running into next year. So you've got a very in interesting conundrum as you come into year end at this point, how you position for the beginning of next year, because it appears yet again that the US looks like the safest place to park cash. The issue that raises, though, for everybody else is what does that mean for the strength of the dollar running into next year? If the U.S. continues to suck in cash from around the world, that means the dollar remains strong, which undermines your investment in a lot, lot of other asset classes, I think, running into next year. So you've got to think about this very carefully. We've been talking about too much optimism in the U.S. markets around trade, for instance. But when it comes to the session Friday... Too much optimism overall. I mean, we had a, a very strong payrolls number, which then saw one rate cut removed from the table for next year for some investors. And what do we have? The market positive.
popped. So good news was good news. We've been in a window where bad news has been good news for the market because if we get bad news in the form of a no trade deal or the form of a weakening US economy, then we get more rate cutting. That's been positive for the stock market. So somehow we changed narrative and it was still positive for the stock market, which goes to the point of when do we see some negativity start to crop back into the trade where we see a sell off in shares? And it seems a little bit unusual that everything can be positive for the US market at this point. When it comes to this week, I mean, Steve has just outlined the wall that it's a fairly huge week. Well, we've got the Fed. Do we see a more hawkish tone that sets up the week by Wednesday where they, they take a nod to the, the payroll data and perhaps they stand longer, uh, on hold for longer or start to remove some of those rate cuts? What about tariffs? Though, and, and what about trade later on this week? Almost certainly the Fed will, will, will just say we're on hold until things change, won't they? I mean, anyone who's expecting anything else from the Fed this week uh, are, are, is wishful thinking, whether you want the car or, or you think actually there should be a more hawkish vote. I think you're going to get the most neutral Fed of the year just going into this, going to say, end of year, we've done our job, uh, the economy looks like it's okay. Uh, you know, the employment figure, great, but it looks okay elsewhere rather than stellar as well. And as you say, when you do the relative trade compared with the rest of the world, it looks like a, a solid safe haven at the moment. The problem comes uh, for the Fed next year um, because, of course, Moving rates in an electoral year is very, very tricky anyway. So you just have one extra fact to put in. Of course, Mr. Trump has tried to impose himself on central banking thinking throughout the last couple of years. But moving rates in a, in a presidential election year, very, very tricky. And you're treading on eggshells if you do. And you can be criticised from both sides of the fence. Yeah, uh, which is not to say, I mean, when, when we talk about uh, the information that we've been getting from the US economy. It's not to say that everything is rosy in the garden. The BIS uh, report about how the repo markets may not be working effectively because of the bank's excessive holdings of US treasuries, I think is another message about some risks around the plumbing. They've also s talked about um, the FX markets and what risks there could be around liquidity in the FX markets. It's something to bear in mind as we run into next year. And of course, the China data, whilst it's not having a massive impact on the Asian market, this morning. The China data was pretty horrible. Uh, let's bridge then to the Hong Kong story since we've just mentioned the China data. Hong Kong protesters have staged the largest rally since last month's local elections. That swept pro-democracy parties into power. Hundreds of thousands took to the streets, marking six months of demonstrations in the Chinese territory. Let's get out to Sherry, who joins us now live from Hong Kong. And Sherry, I've heard a number of interpretations as to why the weekend passed relatively peacefully uh, and the one that seemed to make most sense is that there was a willingness for the protesters to disperse because of that electoral victory that they had at the regional elections. What are you hearing where you are? So that's exactly the trend that, that we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks, Jeff. Uh, since the district council elections here in Hong Kong last month, there has been this relative lull in violence and disruptions across the territory. And another fact that is that uh, the organizers behind yesterday's massive rally marking the eve of the six-month anniversary of this anti-government protest are the uh, Civil Human Rights Front. They are the organizers 
appears behind mostly peaceful uh, marches and rallies so far in 2019. And also goes to show how there is was that police approval for yesterday's rally. Remember, the police hasn't been giving uh, the Civil Human Rights Front, this particular group, their approval to assemble and rally since September. So that is one layer, uh, one more reason why it motivated more people to come out to the streets. But at the same time, there another reason why it was, uh, you know, a, a peaceful demonstration. In the meantime, of course, uh, there were some, you know, elements of divisions, pro-Beijing rallies on Saturday as well. So there is that juxtapose of deep uh, divide here in Hong Kong still. And when it comes to the reaction coming from the Hong Kong government in the wake of yesterday's massive rally, uh, we heard the familiar lines of, you know, calls uh, to uh, end violence and also to engage in a dialogue with the community without getting any more specific or without giving any concrete commitment or concessions at this point. In the meantime, as uh, we are seeing a lot of anger, grievances that are being laid bare because of this six-months-long anti-government protest, also exposed to a lot of disruptions and violence is the Hong Kong economy. As we are marking the anniversary today, we have been getting a lot of headline numbers uh, that point to, uh, you know, point to slowing things, slow down in Hong Kong's economic activity, especially in sectors like retail and tourism and travel. And we hear numbers like retail sales are down 24% in in the month of October on year. Bankruptcies are rising 17% in the third quarter. And that leads to the word, the R word of recession here in Hong Kong economy. And just to give you uh, some interesting forecasts that we got from an economist from Nectisis this morning. We were speaking to her earlier this morning on CNBC. Nectisis actually forecasts 1.1 to 2 percent of economic contraction in 2019. And get this, 2 to 3 percent of economic contraction in 2020 if the domestic situation continues and if the Hong Kong government fails to deliver more, uh, you know, sizable and more targeted fiscal stimulus. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, we've been getting uh, some stimulus measures uh, that uh, totaled to around 3.2 billion U.S. dollars. But at this point, it certainly seems like some economists think that that is just not enough. Guys, back to you. Thank you very much. Uh, let's push on to France, where the Prime Minister has vowed to move ahead with pension reforms. Days after 800,000 people took part in nationwide protests opposing the measures. Eduardo Philippe has defended the overhaul, saying a future government would be forced to make, quote, really brutal changes if the existing plan is not implemented. Charlotte joins us around the desk with more. Charlotte, day five of protests and disruptions to public transport. Is this having uh, an eerie sense that it's a gilet jaune all over again? No, I mean, it's generally strikes. It was this one day of protest on Thursday, and tomorrow actually has been called a second day of protest too, because the unions want to keep pushing and keep the pressure on the government. But yes, still no transport almost 
almost uh, in Paris and in France. Uh, this been, so it feels like everything has been accelerating on the political side since this big protest because it was 800,000 people. So it was massive, massive success for the unions. And so um, you had uh, the prime minister, Edouard Philippe, spoke on Friday to say he will present the details of this reform. Because remember that this strike and this, this protest were preemptive. We actually didn't know what was in the reform. So now we will have the details on Wednesday. There was a cabinet meeting uh, yesterday and a dinner with the president last night. And so today the unions will meet the Labour minister again. There will be more protests tomorrow and the reform will be presented on Wednesday. So there's very much the pressure on both sides. This is a crucial week. This is the make or break for the unions or for the government. Or do the unions manage to keep the pressure, manage to keep the mobilisation, or the government hoping that the public opinion kind of go on their go their way because it's kind of 50 50 at the moment and and that they can push gotta, push them with everything gotta love france um i love france it's it's possibly my third favorite country on the planet after uk and italy but but i love the place and i've just come back from there as well and i was in paris during the strikes as you know uh, but i love this bit about france 69 percent of people back the strikes but 75 percent of people back pension reform in france that's exactly Everyone right. Everyone want to go through that again? You know, 69% <laughs> of people back the strikes and 75 back pension. And, and the point being is, no one wants to retire later. I would retire tomorrow if I could in some ways, although I'd probably still work for Simbi for nothing, in case the bosses are working, watching. But the point being is, 62 to 64, it's immaterial compared to our longevity now. It's immaterial compared with the French pension deficit, which is ballooning through the roof, and the costs of the state for the pension, which is ballooning through the roof, and these 42 special regimes, including Paris opera workers as well. I mean, dare I say, I will criticise any government for anything, uh, but Macron is right to try and do this, and most pension people agree, but they still agree that they should be striking against it. I don't get France. Well, you know, like with General de Gaulle said, it's harder to, how can you govern a country with 500 cheeses? No, something he said like 280 cheeses, actually, <laughs> well, actually they were near 800, but you're right, de Gaulle underestimated the point, yes. But, you know, another element that is interesting in the opinion polls is that most people want the reform, but they don't trust the Macron administration to push it through. So there's an element of trust here in the current government in actually leading. And you know, there's an emotional connection in French uh, public opinion on if you start un undoing some bits of the social welfare system in France, then it's the beginning of the end. This is what makes the French Republic. And you start undoing bits of it, then none of it is, is secure. So there's the, a... The, I mean, we all know what's going on here. It's the same with tax planning in this country. You're pleased to see people paying more as long as it's other people. And that's really the story, isn't it, with France and with the UK with regard to tax uh, strategy going forward. Ultimately, there will be winners and losers in the adjustment of these pension plans because some of them are fully funded and very generous in the public sector and some in the private sector are not. And if you push them together, some will have to be leveled down and a few will be leveled up. But inevitably, there'll probably be more losers than winners. Well, it depends because to, to try to put all these uh, special regimes on the one actually is to put to put an end to these um, special regimes, particularly in the transport system. That's why the unions are very uh, strong in the railway workers and the Paris transport workers are massively defending because, you know, they can retire at between 52 and 55 on the full pension, while mm -hmm. the rest of people will retire between 63 and 67. And it's the same pot of money. So that's why the public opinion is very much in favor of this reform. And there will be some losers. And that's why the French government wants to come out with the details, because everybody's nervous that they will be losing out on this reform. So they sure. want to put out the plan and explain 
who will be losing out and who will decide the vast majority of people yeah. will actually gain from this We reform. have to leave it there, but this is a week of fact-checking in the United Kingdom, what all the leaders are saying, so we have to fact-check CNBC. De Gaulle said 246 oh, cheeses, and I was right, he did underestimate it. Apparently, there are 1,600 different types of French cheese, so we need to <laughs> fact-check. Isn't that the phrase of the, of the, of the campaign? Fact-checking Boris, fact-checking Corbyn. Fascinating piece of information about cheeses. If uh, so. you're getting up to watch us and you're having your breakfast this morning. <laughs> and, uh, well, French eat cheese for breakfast, t- Tucking they? in for an, to a nice piece of uh, Roquefort. <laughs> they serve it. Hot breakfast. chocolate and a croissant or a baguette. Well, when I stayed in uh, Paris, it was there. That's for the tourists. It's for the tourists. It was that part of your continental breakfast. Was that? <laughs> Do you know what? I had the option of spending 30 euros on the full breakfast uh-huh. or or 15 on the continent and I went yeah. for the, the cheaper option. I hope the bosses are watching now. All right, well, you've probably just leveled things up now. <laughs> Apart from saying that you want to retire early, you've now said <laughs> that you are saving the company money. So euros. that's good. Coming up on the programme, OPEC agrees further output cuts as Saudi Aramco gets its IPO date. Uh, we will hear from Saudi Arabia's energy minister in just a few moments. Podcasting. If you uh, can't get enough of the show, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. You can head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. So Saudi Aramco will officially begin trading on December the 11th, according to the domestic exchange, the Tadawal. Uh, The opening auction for the oil giant will be extended for 30 minutes on its first day of trading. The state oil giant has priced its IPO at 32 rial per share, aiming to raise $25.6 billion. The valuation makes it the biggest listing in history. OPEC and its allies, meanwhile, have pledged to cut output by 500,000 barrels per day. Saudi Arabia has also committed to additional voluntary cuts of 400,000 barrels. Right, so just, just take a pause there. They've taken the best part of a million extra barrels off the table. Now, I'm not saying oil didn't rally. It did, but still not where they want it, is it? Anyway, the combined cuts will see over 2% of global demand removed from the market. I don't get those numbers. 500 plus 400 is 900,000 barrels, yeah? Global demands are 100 million barrels a day. Mm. Uh, Saudi Arabia's energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz, spoke to CNBC in a first-on interview and outlined how the new output cuts will work. The new deal will kick in uh, 1st of January. I think we will see better numbers of some countries on as I was promised by our friend from Nigeria, that there will be in full compliance uh, for the month of November, which is, we will be able to verify that in uh, somewhere mid-December. Uh, we were told also by our friend from Iraq that they will uh, have been uh, doing something extra in terms of uh, their performance. Uh, so in reality, I think we will be able to see also their performance, everybody's performance in December. That will appear in mid-January. 
but the new deal will kick in on 1st of uh, January and we will be able to see uh, everybody's performance somewhere in mid-February. How closely correlated was this decision to the pricing of the long-awaited Aramco IPO? Because we've already seen a reaction in oil since your comments uh, just a little earlier ago, 2%. It just so happened uh, that, uh, you know, the timing of OPEC meeting was decided uh, way in June. The timing of the IPO was decided just more recently. Uh, if, if it was to be intertwined, uh, I would, we would have elected to, 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 to defer it or bring it earlier or something. That is not to make it coincide uh, with any OPEC meeting. So 30 years in the industry. But the fact that they coincided, people tr try to draw a correlation between the two. But, uh, you know, it's some media outlet tried to use that as a caveat for uh, getting us to, uh, to explaining uh, to explain what we are trying to do in this OPEC meeting. Look, I'm going to make this really simple. Um, the high point of the year was uh, around about what are we talking now? Seventy five dollars per barrel on Brent uh, in April as well. They need those kind of levels to get to the kind of valuations they want for state assets as well. Uh, and there are questions about whether they can get anywhere near that. Now, maybe the oil price will go up. Maybe there'll be less shale coming on board in the next couple of years. Certainly less investment going into shale as well. But they're hoping for other factors. And once again, this underlines, as far as I can see, that despite the fact that OPEC Plus has been way more successful than OPEC on its own, the fact is they do not control the destiny uh, of this oil price at the moment. Because, of course, we haven't even mentioned the demand side. And you mentioned and the, the varying levels of data we're seeing on the demand side. Yeah. Plus this substitution. I've just come back from, I can't talk too much about it because it was a closed shop meeting at the IEA, but I did a ministerial with 30 plus ministers as well. And there wasn't one person in that room who didn't pretty much start off their presentations by talking about the energy transition. So the threat is clear and present, short, medium and long term. I know long term, you very much have very strong points around energy transition, but short term, do we give the Saudis a bit of a bit of a nod, a bit of a, a pat on the back for their short term performance? I mean, we saw movement in the price of about 7% over the course of the week, a short term window when we know they're extremely motivated to get the price higher around the Saudi Aramco listing. So do they manage to do it for a very short-term window? Uh, has the Aramco listing been a failure, Karen? Well, I mean, I'm just going to chuck mean, that out. Broadly though, speaking, I would think yeah, many of us They didn't get the price they way. want. They didn't get the international roadshow going. They didn't get the international investors on board as well. Um, it's, it's the showpiece. For the, for the stag? For the, Sorry? For the stag, though, where you've been asked to sign up effectively, a little bit left on the table, you get the, the oil price up. Short-term you know, win for I, some I, of those I don't investors? Know. I think that you can construct a very good argument on both sides. I would say from what I'm hearing from people in the industry, they would say it's, it's I'm going to say it, it's not been successful. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.